to John chapter 14. Moving right along in the Gospel of John. Men, before we dig in, um, I don't know if you saw this on the table. If you didn't, please get one on the way out. It's a um, half day, because guys, we really don't have much more time than that. That's about all you can get out of us a half a day. Conference and barbecue. Um, it's with our brothers in Calvary Chapel, Stroudsburg, and uh, myself and Pastor Johnny Zacchio will be featured speakers at that conference. So I think Johnny's church is in um, Jersey City. He's a good guy, and I'm glad, uh, you guys will be blessed by that message. So if you're able to come, we're going to carpool and, and uh, go up there together. But let me know. Um, at some point, let me know that you're going so I can let them know how many of us are coming. So this morning we are in John chapter 14. Why don't you stand for a minute and uh, get your Christian calisthenics in for, the minute, for a moment. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Father, we pray as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, that you would show us great and mighty things in your word, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, and no one would leave here this morning, Lord, without being blessed by your word. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, please be seated. So Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So their hearts are troubled, the Bible tells us. And Think about why their hearts are troubled. They just learned that one of them would betray Jesus. So they knew that that was going to bring the Jewish authorities upon them. And, and the authorities meant trouble in that day. So they're not exactly outlaws. I mean, they're not in hiding. But they knew that the Sanhedrin were looking for Jesus. And they knew that they were plotting to kill Jesus. So Jesus, in effect, is a wanted man, isn't he? So they're troubled. By their, they're troubled by that thought. And they're, they're troubled by the fact that trouble's coming their way. And they're troubled by the fact that Jesus just said one of them is a traitor. One of them is going to betray him. And they're also troubled about Jesus' words that he's leaving them. 
Little children, I'll be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. In John chapter 13. So Jesus was leaving, and they didn't know where he was going, or when he was going, or how long he would be gone. All they really knew is that wherever he was going, they could not follow him. So they're troubled. They're troubled by all this. They're going to be troubled by words that Jesus speaks to Peter when Peter said, You know what, Lord, I lay down my life for you. And what does Jesus say to him? This night you'll, be, you'll deny me, you'll deny even knowing me three times. So here's Peter, the rock of the church, the strong one among them, the one who was the first to declare Jesus the Messiah. Jesus said he's going to deny him. So all of this is troubling to them. Do you guys have troubles? Isn't there plenty of troubles in, in, the, in our lives today? And isn't that the way it seems? That there's one thing after another, after another, after another. In some ways, that one issue, one troubling issue, multiplies into many troubling issues, just from that one, right? You know, maybe you're saving up money to, to have the brakes fixed on the car. And so you're just, you're just close enough to get them done, and a hot water heater goes. And so now you have to take the money that you save for fixing the brakes on the car and apply it towards a brand new hot water heater. And when you throw in the fact that you had to miss a day from work because the hot water went, hot water heater went, right? So now you're short a day's pay. It just piles on and on and on and on and on. And in the meantime, you still have to have the brakes fixed on the car. So we all know, everyone in this room knows how a problem can multiply from one other problem, right? And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let these things that are troubling you, these multi multiple things that are troubling you, don't let them trouble you. And he gives them the answer for a troubled heart. He says, simply believe. Believe. Trust. Trust in me. Believe in God. Believe that there's someone greater than all of your problems. There's someone greater than all of your troubles. Paul wrote this to the Ephesian church. He said, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think or even imagine to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3.20 So we can get caught up in our problems. We can focus. We can become so preoccupied with our problems that our heart becomes troubled. We can become so caught up in our problems that we forget who, the God, who God is, who the God that we serve is. That God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask of Him. All that we could think. All that we could even imagine. Paul was the one who also wrote, We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now he wrote these words to remind us who the God is that we serve. So that when we do get crushed, when we are hard pressed rather, we won't be crushed. He won't let us be consumed by despair when we're perplexed, meaning when we're filled with uncertainty. He won't forget us. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us, even in the midst of persecution. Especially in the midst of persecution. And if we are struck down, he says, we will not be destroyed. So there is nothing that we can bring to God, nothing that we can lay at His feet, no trouble that any of us are going through that is beyond His 
capability. In fact, we can't think of this troubling situation that we would face that God can't handle. You know, I was asked to do a memorial for one of my son's Marine Corps buddies who took his own life. We lose, I don't know if you are aware of this, but we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. And that doesn't even cover first responders, medical personnel, police officers. They all, they're all, suicide it seems is, is, is an epidemic. Now maybe it's always been this way, and maybe social media has made us more aware of it. I don't know. But it just seems like every time I go on Facebook, every time I hear of another story, it's someone else taking their own life. So per, to prepare for this particular memorial, I messaged quite a few of these Marines that I've met through my son that I've come to, to love, and, and I asked them, what do you think's going on? These, these Marines are tired of losing their buddies. And I asked them, what do you think the reason is for this senseless loss of life? Because at this point, we've lost more of our service members to suicide than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. And the answers I received from these young Marines was very telling. Hopelessness, a lack of purpose, a lack of self-worth. And one of the best quotes that I have read from someone who considered suicide is this, I didn't want to die, I just wanted life as I knew it to end. And here's a person who wanted to live, but didn't want to live with the pain associated with living. It sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? We have an entire generation out there that have lost sight of who they are. They've lost sight of what their purpose is. Now maybe, just maybe, and I know I'm reading a lot into this, but maybe the disciples are struggling with the same thing. Maybe they're wondering what they're going to do without Jesus. Maybe they're wondering what their purpose will be once Jesus is gone. And see, that's what happens when we lose focus as believers. We, we lose our focus because our purpose is to serve Almighty God. That's our purpose. And when we lose focus as believers, we forget that that's our purpose. We have a purpose. That's who we are. That's what defines us. We are servants of the Most High God. Amen? So our worth, our value comes from serving Him. Serving in the kingdom. He is the reason for our hope. And Jesus is going to tell us about that hope in these next few verses. So when our hearts get troubled, when they get overwhelmed, and I'm praying that the Lord uses me when I do give this message, that this is the message I can convey to a room full of people who are distraught, that Jesus is our hope that He is our reason, that He is the answer for our troubled hearts, that when we feel overwhelmed, we have to ask ourselves then, have I lost focus? Have I forgotten whom I serve? Have I forgotten that the purpose in my life is to serve Him even in the midst of my trials? You know, I absolutely love the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Babylonian, that's their Babylonian names. A little Bible trivia this morning. Does anyone remember their God-given Jewish names? You get five points if you get at least one. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
We forget that because we always call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that was their Babylonian names. So they're about to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. You know the story? Because they won't what? Anybody remember why? They won't bow down to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. So here's what they say to the king, and this is what I love about these three young men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, and I just, that jersey twangs in there, and that little bit of sarcasm. We don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But... If he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve you. We're not going to serve the gods that you worship or the golden image that you have set up. I love these guys. They knew that their only purpose in this life was to honor God with their lives, even if it meant losing their lives. Their only purpose was to serve God, and serve him they did. Think about what they said. They're standing there talking to the king, the most powerful man on the planet at that time. Hey, king, this is going to go one of two ways. We're either going to be saved from the burning, fiery furnace by our God, or our God's going to take us home to be within. Either way this goes, we're not bowing down. We're not bowing down to you or your statue or anything else. We'll never do that. They served God. They honored God by not bowing down to the other gods or any man-made images. So when we come to our Lord with our trials and our tribulations, maybe they're as serious as, as being in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Maybe they're just as, as simple as the car breaking down, not having enough money to get a new water heater. Whatever it is, let's remember that no matter what, our purpose in this life is to serve Almighty God with our lives. And that there's no greater opportunity to do that than when we're in the midst of a trial. No matter how severe or how mundane that trial is, we are to serve God. And because it presents an opportunity for us to point others to the Lord by the way we persevere through troubling times, doesn't it? That people see something different in us. And they said, how can you handle this so easily? I would fall apart in this. And that's our opportunity to point them to the Lord. Notice these three men said of God, and if he does not, if God doesn't save us, we're still going to serve him. Doesn't matter. We're still going to serve him and him only. And what a difference our walk would be if we had that single focus that any time we're in trouble or any troubling times that come into our lives that we are going to point others to Him even if it doesn't turn out the way we want them to. In these next few verses, Jesus is going to remind them and us of who we are and who we belong to. But this also acts as a reminder to us that even though there are things in this world that will trouble us, even though that there are troubling times that lie ahead, this is not our home. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. 
Now, I love the language that Jesus uses here because you may not pick up on it, but it is reminiscent of an ancient Jewish wedding. When the bride and groom were, were married in ancient Israel, the groom would leave his bride, sometimes for up to a year. Now, he wasn't going out to get a pack of cigarettes and never came back. He, was, he would leave his bride for up to a year. Can you imagine being a newlywed, just getting married, and your groom goes away for maybe up to a year? And he would spend that time putting a new addition on his father's house so that he would come at some point and get his bride and bring her back and they would stay in the father's house. Now, it was only the father who would know. You know, he'd be out there inspecting every day. All right, son, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to still do this. So it was only the father who would know when that place was sufficiently ready for the groom to go and get his bride. And then the groom would gather up the wedding party and if it was in the evening, they would light torches and they would go and get the bride and bring her back to his father's house. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Didn't we just read that verse? That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that there were ten virgins. They're waiting for the bridegroom, right? Now five of the virgins had what in their lamp? Oil. And five did not. They needed the oil to help guide them to the bridegroom when he came for the bride. So the five who didn't have oil went out to find oil, and while they're gone, the Bible tells us the bridegroom came, the bridegroom came and the five who had oil went with him, and the five who did not were left behind. So the oil in, the, in Scripture represents for us the Holy Spirit. The bridegroom, of course, is Jesus. So when God the Father, and I, I believe there's a deli clock in heaven. I really do. And it's clicking down. And when that deli clock gets to zero, the last possible person to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior comes. God just looks at his son and says, Okay, son, you're up. It's your time. All of those, and I can imagine God saying, You've prepared all the houses, all the rooms, all the places that you need for your bride. It's time to go get her. And so when the Lord returns for his bride, the church, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, will be leaving with him. And those who are not will be left behind. Now that word in the Greek, that word mansion, is dwelling place. So, Missy, if you think you're getting a big 60-room mansion, you are not. It's just a dwelling place. I don't know. I would settle for a broom closet in heaven. It doesn't matter to me. But we can rest assured that there will, heaven will never run out of room. It can never run out of room. There's room enough for all of us. In fact, I don't know, if you, if you like science at all, if you pay attention to this at all, we were always taught that there's a universe, right? Well, scientists have discovered that there's multiple universes. We're not the only ones, although we're arrogant to think we are. We're not the only ones. There's, was not, there's other planet Earths, even, our size. So there's multiple universes out there. It's not just us. Listen. I'm not saying there's other people out there. You can do your own research on that. I'm just saying there's multiple universes. That's all I'm saying. E.T., phone home. But Jesus is making a promise here. He's saying, I've come from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. And that promise is based on him being there and coming back. And he's saying, I want you to come with me. You can't come with me now, but when you do, I want you to come with me and I want you to stay with me for all eternity. 
So with these words, Jesus is comforting them. He's promising them that he's going to come back for them. And then when he does, he's going to receive them to him and take us to heaven so that where he is, we will also be. Now that promise has two fulfillments in it for believers. The first is when we leave this earth, we leave these earthly tents behind, we'll go to, we'll go to heaven because, well, I'll get to that. And the second is the rapture of the church. Listen, any chance I get to talk about the rapture, I'm going to. So Jesus kind of gave me a, an, an in here, so I'm taking it. So first, referring to our personal death. When we die, we're buried, of course, unless you die out in the woods. And, or at least our earthly tents are buried, right? And the Bible teaches us what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our earthly tents go in the grave and our souls go to heaven. Did you know there's a very clear example of that found in Genesis? In Genesis chapter 35, verse 18, we read, And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-One, but his father called him Benjamin. And a couple of verses later in that passage of Scripture, it tells us that Jacob buried Rachel along the way to Bethlehem. So he buried her earthly tent in the ground, but her soul went to heaven to be with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with God. The human soul is who we are as a person. Our human soul is, is us. It's a human being. It's who we are. One pastor said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. So these, there's even Bible verses that speak of us as souls. And I want you to consider this sobering thought for a moment. It's been said that the only two things that, that last are the Word of God and the souls of men. This is because like the Word of God, the soul of man is imperishable. That means that every person that you've ever met in your entire life, or will meet, has an eternal soul. Every human being who's ever existed has a soul, and all those souls are still in existence somewhere. The question is where? Are they separated from God? Or are they with God? Now if you think about that, that should really make witnessing to people a top priority in our lives, shouldn't it? Second, another way saints are received by Jesus is in the rapture. And yes, I believe in the rapture. I know there's many who don't, and maybe there's some sitting here this morning who don't, and that's okay. But I wanted to take a little time here to explain why I believe in the rapture of the church. Now, anybody who believes in the rapture of the church believes that the next major event that will take place in Bible prophecy is the rapture of the church. So for those who've never heard of the rapture, for those who really don't understand what it is, I want to take a few moments here and try to explain it. Hopefully I won't confuse you even more than when you came in here. So in the book of Revelation, John is told by Jesus to write down three different perspectives. First, he's told to write the things which are, meaning the things or the messages that you'll read in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. So those messages are written during the church age, which we still, by the way, are living in. Then John's told to write the things which will take place after this, and that refers to chapters 4 through 22 of Revelation, 
that period describes the period of the Great Tribulation. And then thirdly, John's told to write the things after these things. After what things? Well, if you read it, it's after the church age, after the church has come to an end, but before the tribulation. So the events that John described after Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 don't include the church. After chapter 3, we don't see the church mentioned again. So what happens to the church? Well, I believe, many believe, that it is raptured. It's taken out of here before the great tribulation begins. So what proof do we have of that? So this event that we call the rapture is most clearly presented in Paul's first letter to Thessalonians. And if you would, please turn there if you've never read this passage of Scripture. Let's read it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now all the T's are together, so if you get to Timothy or Titus, you'll know you're in the right spot. God makes it easy for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, that English phrase, caught up, as Paul uses it in the Greek, that word is herpazo, and it means to pluck, to pull off, to snatch up. So it doesn't mean the church just dies off. It means that at some point the church is just snatched up from here. The church is snatched up and Paul says we're, we meet Jesus in the air and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye. Meaning that those who are dead and are in Christ and those who are alive and are in Christ rise up and meet Jesus in the air. So those who have died first and are in Christ, they're raised up first, and they meet Jesus in the air, and they are, I believe, reunited with their souls. And it's like, body, soul, glorification. Those who are still in our earthly tents, and still alive in Christ when Jesus comes for his church, will also rise up, soul intact, and meet him in the air, and also be glorified at that moment. So do we have an example in the Bible of someone still alive, walking with God, and being taken up in the air by God? Well, yes we do. I'm glad you asked that. Elijah and Enoch. First, Elijah. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father! the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11-12. through 12. So, here's Elijah and Elisha walking along, minding their own business, and God sends the very first Uber to pick up Elijah. 
Elijah had been an obedient servant of the Most High God all his life, and God chose to receive him to himself in heaven without him ever experiencing death. Enoch, the Bible tells us, walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch walked with God, and he walked with God at a time that the world was desperately wicked. Now, Enoch didn't walk according to the ways of the world. Enoch walked according to the ways of God. And God chose to take Enoch out of this world and receive him to heaven without Enoch ever experiencing death. So we have biblical evidence that there were two who were taken from earth without ever experiencing death. They were raptured. They were raptured out of here. So why do we believe that the church will be raptured? Well, we believe that because of what Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we read, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And Jesus is clearly talking about tribulation here. He's saying you will not experience the tribulation. So if we don't experience the tribulation, then we must be removed prior to the tribulation. And I just want to throw this out there. You can make of it what you want. Out of all the churches, and there's seven mentioned in Revelation, between Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, Jesus only says these words to the church of Philadelphia. And he also says this to them, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now I look around the world today, and I look at the churches around the world. And I see churches who have denied the name of Jesus Christ. I see churches who are not standing firm on the word of God. Churches that don't even have Bible in the church. And I see, sadly see, because it's heartbreaking, to see people going against what Jesus has chosen to bless this church of Philadelphia with his words so I want to look a little closer at the church of Philadelphia and see why Jesus had such wonderful things to say about them. Jesus said, I've set before you an open door, meaning you have had an opportunity to share the gospel, and you have taken it. You have shared the gospel. And they've shared the gospel no matter what, even in the face of ridicule, even in the face of rejection, even, even in the face of persecution. Jesus said, you've not denied my name. You've not denied the name of Jesus Christ, even if it cost you something, for standing up for the name of Jesus. And then Jesus says, you have stood firm on the word of God. You've been obedient to the word of God, no matter what the cost. So this is the church of Philadelphia. The church that Jesus said he would save from the trial that was to come. Now, at the time this letter is written, it is written to the city of Philadelphia. Not the city of Philadelphia over here. But this city of Philadelphia was among seven other cities that were located along what we would call a mail route in Asia Minor. And in these cities were churches to whom these letters were addressed to. And Jesus also says in Revelation chapter 3, when I believe he's now addressing all of these churches together, Him who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from 
out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all believers, all believers who are the church, who do not deny the name of Jesus Christ, who stand firm on his, on his word and persevere to the end, sharing the gospel, no matter what the cost, will be saved from the tribulation. I mean, that's how I read this. And the body of believers who overcome the obstacles that the world's placing in our path, obstacles against us serving the one true God, worshiping our one true God, obstacles that they're going to try to force upon us for believers to deny the name of Jesus, to not stand firm on his word, those who overcome those obstacles, those who persevere through those times, their names will be written in the kingdom of heaven. Now, many have argued the point that there is no rapture, that God's simply going to, that this means that God is simply going to save his church through the tribulation, through his divine protection. The problem with that is that Jesus says, I will save you from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. He, did never, he never said, I will save you through it. He said, I will save you from it. So whether you believe in pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, and we won't even get into that, just briefly say that for those that don't understand, there's some who believe that we're, we're, we're raptured out before the tribulation, some believe we're raptured out in the middle of the tribulation, and some believe we're raptured out at the end of the tribulation. Whatever you believe, it doesn't mean anything. We're still brothers and sisters of the Lord. It doesn't affect your salvation. It just means you believe in the rapture, we just disagree on the time frame, right? And so that's something we can laugh about on the way up. <laughs> the reason the rapture is such an important biblical teaching is because of its imminence. It could happen at any time. It could happen before we leave this building this morning. Jesus is coming back for his bride. So the question for all of us is, are we ready? Are we ready? I remember one pastor saying, look up, pack up, because we're going up. That is hope for our troubled hearts, that we are going to be with him forever. Paul said, therefore, comfort each other with these words. Comfort each other with the, with the fact and the knowledge that we're going to re be removed from this place and we're not going to experience the wrath of God, that Jesus experienced that wrath for us on the cross. That we're not going to be here during a time when the Bible tells us would be so grievous that if the days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. Jesus gives us more comfort for our troubled hearts in these next few verses. He said, Thomas, well, Thomas said to him, rather, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how we can know and how can we know the way. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus isn't the, just one way among many different ways. Jesus is the only way. And we know this is true because Jesus has said it's true. But do you know that there are many reasons throughout the Bible that support Jesus' claim to be the only way? So if you're taking notes, I'm going to go as slow as I possibly can because I'm going, to, I'm going to spit out a bunch of scripture verses that you can look up later. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus is the only way God has chosen to save us. John chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is the only one sent by God 
to save us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus is the only one who is ever sinless. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the only atonement for our sin. Hebrews 10, verse 26. Jesus is the only sacrifice for our sin. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is the only one to conquer death forever. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Jesus is the only mediator between sinful man and a holy God. Philippians 2, 9. Jesus is the only one whom God has exalted. You need more proof than that? This is what Jesus said. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, Only I have the words... Well, Peter actually said to Jesus, You're the only one who has the words of life. In John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, He is the only way to eternal life. In John chapter 6, verse 35, He is the bread of life. In John chapter 11, verse 25, He is the resurrection and the life. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is no other salvation, there is no other name by which we are saved. Paul said in Acts 13, 38, 39, Only through Jesus is there justification and forgiveness for sin. And John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, that only Jesus can forgive our sins. So it's quite clear from Scripture that Jesus is the only way. Because there's no other one but Jesus who could ever make that claim. There's no other one but Jesus who could ever forgive sin. There's no other one but Jesus who could ever atone for our sin, or forgive us of our sin, or conquer death, or offer us resurrection from the dead into eternal life. Only Jesus. So without Jesus, no one can get to heaven. And Jesus is telling us that very thing. There is no other way. And the good news for us here this morning is that that's information that calms our troubled hearts, isn't it? Because we know that we belong to Jesus and that we are going to heaven when we leave this earth. So no matter what we face here on this earth, no matter what trial or tribulation we go through, this is not our home. We get to spend all eternity with Him. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know Him and have seen Him. Verse 7, chapter 14. So calling God Father is a relatively new concept introduced by Jesus. Now yes, the Old Testament showed characteristics of God that were like an earthly father, but Jesus calls God Father on a regular basis. He also calls him Abba, which means Father, but it's our equivalent of Dad. It's like, me call, it's like someone calling you Dad or Daddy. Jesus even invites his disciples to call God our Father because we are adopted We are his adopted sons and daughters. We're adopted into the kingdom of God. So Jesus wants us to know that we can have the same intimate relationship with God, our Father, as he had. That we, like Jesus, had been given an earthly father, a dad to help raise us, protect us, and provide for us, but that we also have a heavenly father. So, and I know as dads, as a dad, that sometimes we're not always be the dad we want to be and sometimes we are far less than than an example of our heavenly father but you know I wondered is there a correlation is there a connection 
between our Father in Heaven and an earthly father. Recently, Brian and I were in a car with Silas and Oliver, and, and Silas made an observation that just broke my heart. Silas pointed to his dad, Brian, my son, and said, that's my dad. And then he pointed to me and said to Oliver, that's your dad. Now, I, I corrected him, of course, because I'm not his dad, I'm his grandfather, but how do you explain to a three-year-old that his dad's in heaven? Harder yet, how do you explain to a little boy who's lost his dad that he has a father in heaven? You know, a dad to a little boy is someone who plays catch with you in the backyard, someone who teaches you how to swing a bat, someone who eventually sits down with you and has the birds and the bees conversation, although probably most of you moms are the ones that had that conversation. A dad who teaches you how to swing a hammer or turn a wrench, right? Teaches you how to drive a car. But how would the God of all creation do any of that with a little boy who was missing his earthly dad? While God wouldn't throw a ball or teach him how to drive or how to turn a wrench or even swing a bat, he would, however, send someone like me, like his uncles, to fill that role. And to show him, and this is most important, more important than teaching him how to swing a bat, more important than teaching him how to turn a wrench or drive a car, and if anybody watched Facebook, at three years old, he already knows how to drive a car. But to sh more importantly, to show him God the Father through me, through an earthly dad. And you know, as it turns out, we can see the characteristics of an earthly dad in our Heavenly Father. For instance, God our Father has given us life. And our earthly father has also played a part in our life, in our birth. So how could you convey that concept that we have an earthly dad who helped give us life, but we also have a heavenly father who's the source of all life to a child? You know, it's funny. Uh, God is always, he's always, he never ceases to amaze me. I was talking to Keith before, and Keith was telling me how, Keith and Petra told me how they found a little baby possum in the field, and, and Petra's kind of nursing him raising him and making, getting him strong enough. And Keith was telling me as he's holding this possum in his hand, the possum's licking his little hands, cleaning his hands, and then using his hands to clean his face and his back of his neck, and then licking the back of his feet to clean the back of him and, and inside his ears. And Keith's looking at this in awe and wonder, how does this little tiny life know how to do that already? And obviously he just crawled up out of the primordial soup just a few days ago and learned how to do that all by himself. He just, of course, he was designed that way, right? Keith told me about a little squirrel he found as well. And, and, and I, I suggested Keith needs to start a church, uh, not a church, a zoo. Um, we got enough of that going around. Keith needs to start a zoo. And uh, he said the little squirrel, the little tiny baby squirrel, hadn't even opened his eyes yet, knew enough to kind of lunge at Keith to drive him away because he was scared. And Keith brought him home and nursed him back to hell. So if you guys are looking for a zoo trip, Keith and Petra's is the place to go. But what amazed him and what amazed me as he told me that story was, was God is in that. His creation is evident all around us. And so you take a child to a zoo and you point out all the various animals that God created. When you go to the park, you show them the trees and the sky and the and at night, the planets and the moon, I never, I, I always take that opportunity to point out the, the moon when it's out or the sun and, and tell them that God made all that. He created all that. 
That's how we convey that message, that God is the source of all life, that He is the Creator. So there's, there's many teachable moments throughout the course of a day with a child just like that. Another way an earthly dad this demonstrates the characteristics of our Heavenly Father is that God lovingly corrects His children, just as an earthly dad would correct His children. Now we can convey that message to them by, listen, to how the Holy Spirit convicts us of wrongdoing, right? So we gently convict them, we gently remind them that they've done something wrong. And then we, we correct them using the same fair and just discipline that God our Father uses with us. Another way our earthly dad is like our heavenly father is that God is our provider. Just as our earthly dad goes to work to provide for his family, and the, the way we convey that message is by teaching them that, that they one day will provide for their family. And also teaching them, however, that they should be happy no matter what. They should be happy in plenty and in need. Another way is that God gives us wisdom just as we go to our earthly dad for advice. We can demonstrate this, of course, to a child by taking them to the Word of God and showing them how God uses His Word to, to lead us and guide us. Another way is that, that our earthly dad is, is like our heavenly father, is that God is always there for us. Just like no matter how many times you mess up, our earthly dad is there for us. And we demonstrate straight that by showing our child that making a mistake doesn't necessarily mean it separates them from us just because they made a mistake. So by loving God, by loving them as God loves us, we get, listen, we get to show them God in us so that they have a picture of what our heavenly dad is like when they see their earthly dad. Jesus, of course, is the perfect representation of God the Father. So to know Jesus was to know God. Me, as a dad, as a grandfather, I may not, I'm, I'm not a perfect representation, I can tell you that. I'm not even an out-of-focus copy, really. I'm just happy being a facsimile, just close. Because the closer I can be to God the Father, I can show them, show Oliver, show the rest of them, what God the Father is like. Amen? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? But the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In the beginning of this chapter, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus, of course, is referring to that unique relationship that he has with God the Father. A relationship so close, but yet Jesus is telling us, reminding us, that we can have that same intimate, close relationship with God the Father. That this isn't just a relationship that He and God the Father, that He has with His Father, that we too, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, can have that same relationship. Now we have to understand, because Thomas and Philip are both asking him questions here, right? And we have to understand kind of the, con the context of this. They're concerned. They're overwhelmed. They don't know what's going on. Philip says, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus is called God his Father. 
Jesus has told them that he's going home to be with God his Father. And he's telling them, this should comfort your troubled hearts. He t he's also telling them that when he gets there, he's going to prepare a place for them so that where he is, they can be also. Then he tells the disciples that the only way to get to heaven, the only way to get there, the only way to get to this place that I'm preparing for you, the only way to see God the Father in heaven is through me. So naturally, they're inquisitive. Wouldn't you be inquisitive if this was the very first time you're hearing something like this? I mean, they've heard about, they've read about, they've studied about God, and they know that others in the Bible have seen God, and so in their minds they're thinking, well, Jesus, if you have such a close, intimate, personal relationship with God the Father, then ask God the Father to reveal himself to us. I think that's a pretty legitimate question, don't you? Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Or God, please show yourself in this situation. Or God, please let me see a miracle so that I know it's you. Or please let me see your hand in this. I mean, there's a lot of different variations to that prayer. But when we ask that, we're basically asking the same question Philip asked, aren't we? God, reveal yourself to me and my heart will be at ease. It will be sufficient for me. And Jesus tells Philip the same thing he tells us. If you want to see the Father, you have seen him in me. Jesus tells them, believe me. And that word means to have confidence in or to trust. So Jesus is saying, do you trust me, Philip? Do you trust me, disciples? Are you confident that I am who I say I am? Now notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He's very patient with them. He knows this is all new to them. He knows that, that he's asking them to believe in something that they've never seen before. Jesus has come from heaven. Jesus has come from being with God the Father. So Jesus knows who and what he's returning to. But the disciples have never been to heaven. The disciples have never met God the Father. So Jesus says to them, trust me. Trust me. Trust that I know God the Father. And, the fact that I, and trust in the fact that I've demonstrated who God is to you. That how he acts, how he loves, even how he looks. Do you trust me? Do you believe in my words? Do you believe, if you don't believe in my words, then at least believe in the works that I've done. You've seen it all. You've seen, you've seen the things that God the Father has done through me. You've seen the dead rise. You've seen the blind see, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk. You've seen all of that. What you saw was God the Father. You saw His characteristics. You saw Him in me. That's who God the Father is. And Jesus is referring, of course, to the closeness and the relationship that He has with His Father. And in these following passages that we're going to, Lord willing, see next week, He's going to tell us that He's going to send another to help us. Now that word another in the Greek means is alos. And alos means one of the same or another of like kind. And Jesus is going to ask the Father, we'll see as we go continue through the Gospel of John, to send the Holy Spirit to help us carry on the ministry that Jesus is leaving. A helper who would abide with us, with them, forever. A helper who would continue to demonstrate God to them. A helper who continues to this day to demonstrate God to us. But not only demonstrate God to them, 
but also dwell in them, dwell in us, so that the world could see God the Father in us and know what God the Father is like through us. In other words, because we know Jesus, we're able to see God through Jesus. Jesus wants the world to know Him through our witness. He wants the world to know God through our lives. That's a pretty big responsibility, isn't it? But we're not left to figure this out on our own. We're not left to do this in our own strength. Thank God for that. He's given us a helper. A helper. Not a doer. I don't see any description in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit's a doer. He's a helper. He helps us. He doesn't do it for us. He helps us. He helps us be more like Jesus to show others God in us. And Lord willing, like I said, we'll get to talk about that more next week and as we continue on through the Gospel of John. Listen, I don't think there's any words that we can find that are more comforting than Jesus saying, trust me. I don't think there's anyone in the world more trustworthy than Jesus. Because listen, there's things that we don't understand. And Jesus is talking to a group of men who don't understand everything Jesus is telling them. And there's things in our life that we just don't understand, that we may never understand this side of heaven. And Jesus is telling us, you don't have to understand them. All you have to do is trust in me. Think of it this way. The creator of the multiverse, the one who died for the sins of all mankind, the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, is asking us, who've done none of those things, to trust Him. Now we trust people all the time, don't we? We trust people who fail us all the time. We trust in things that break down, like the water heater and the brakes on the car. We trust in careers that leave us disillusioned. We trust in so many things that have let us down in our lifetime. Trust in Jesus, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will never let us down, who will always be there for us. Believe in Jesus trust in Jesus even though there's things that we don't understand trust in him and we will never go wrong amen